0: Now, no one thinks they're not going to make it because everyone believes they, they're great. Everyone got a trophy for showing up when they were little, all that stuff, right? Participation trophies. So everyone believes that they're really smart, really good at science and math and everything. They're going to be fine. they get into law school, get into med school, get into whatever. They start borrowing money freshman year, and then they realize, uh-oh, I guess it's really not working out. What am I going to
1: do now? I have all this debt. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, Executive Producer. For this episode, we're taking you back in time to November 2016. Getting a college degree without going broke is challenging, but doable. It requires knowing how the system works, intentionality, creativity, and delayed gratification. In this evening's at Acton conversation, Alex Chediak discusses how to select a college based on value, quality versus price, and how to pay or finance it. He touches on the importance of leveraging your college major as well as spending less and earning more during college. Born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, Alex Chediak earned a BS degree at Alfred University in ceramic engineering and MS and PhD degrees in material science and engineering from UC Berkeley. He worked as an engineer for IBM for three years, 1996 to 1999. From 2005 to 2007, he was an apprentice at the Bethlehem Institute, now Bethlehem College and Seminary, a master's level theological training program overseen by pastors John Piper and Tom Steller. During those years, Alex got his start in Christian higher education at Northwestern College. As of 2007, he's been a professor of engineering and physics at California Baptist University. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
0: So this was 2016, right? The Cubs won the World Series. A guy with no political experience won the presidency, and a guy you've never met before is going to tell you that college is actually affordable. So, you know, uh, what? Be careful what you assume is true. It might not be true, right? Um, so here's the big. I want to begin with how big of a problem is student debt? And Mike mentioned 1.2 trillion dollars. Uh, that's that's a number that's hard to really get your head around, and it's over you know millions of students. How much does each student really have? Um, So I want to talk about how big of a problem it is individually, how to beat the college debt trap, and then principles from borrowing if necessary. So we kind of have a perfect storm these days. College is uh, more expensive than ever before, and uh, it's more important than ever before, and therefore, students are having more debt than ever before. So a couple of different things are going on to make this happen. The job market increasingly requires some kind of credential. Now, it could be an associate's, it can be a bachelor's, a trade school. But some credentials required nowadays, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, half of high school students graduated, went right to work, lived a very decent middle class uh, lifestyle. And you know, we're able to pr- progress in the workforce without having a college diploma. Now you, it's, you need something, some certification, some credentials, some specialization to be able to go on. So that, that's happening. Family incomes have stagnated over the last uh, decade, really. Since the recession, most of the gains have come to the top earners. Uh, and so that's a big problem. And while that's happened, college prices have continued to rise. So th- that's the perfect storm that we're in now. Class of 1993, 45% had debt, that was the average figure among borrowers. Fast forward you know, 23 years, 70% in debt, a much larger figure among borrowers. Uh, here's a graph showing public school tuition versus time. The top line is published tuition and fees. This dotted line is net tuition, fees, Rim and board. I'll come back to that issue in a moment. It's a very important distinction between net price and list price. So the dotted line is net price. The, the, the solid line is list price. Just tuition and fees are the bottom two curves, public schools. Private schools even higher on the tuition and fees side of things. All right? Uh, this is a graph showing what people make versus what they owe. So since 2005, starting salaries, median income of those 25 to 34 year old, years old, relatively constant. Right? Relatively constant. Now, there's been some growth since then, but for a while it was pretty fixed. Meanwhile, the amount they owed was growing and growing and growing. So this is kind of where the problem comes from. Okay? Um, starting salaries now, just in case you're wondering, about $50,000 for new graduates. All right. But what, what young adults have been earning has been relatively constant for about a decade, while the percent of their debt has grown precipitously. And that's really what's causing this perfect storm. Uh, and As you see in politics, it's obviously a very debated topic. Among the, the, on the left side of the spectrum, you have ideas of free tuition, and then on the right you have ideas of more free market principles to, able, to inform students to make better choices. All right, so here's the misconception that I want to address, because it can really be be a detrimental assumption to have. Is everyone borrowing a lot? I've met students who come from first-generation families. When I say first-generation, I mean their parents didn't go to college. They're the first one in their family to go to college. And they just assumed you have to borrow a lot of money. Everyone is borrowing a lot of money. And you probably know that when you assume everyone's doing something, it makes that behavior become more normative. If everybody assumes everyone's borrowing then more people start to borrow lots of money. And so this student borrowed $15,000 for his first year of college, and then $20,000 the next year, twenty-five dollars the next year, graduated had $80,000 of debt. That's actually very, very abnormal. He was in the top five percentile among all bachelors in the nation in terms of his debt load, but he assumed it was normal, so he just did it. And that's really dangerous. Uh, we shouldn't normalize what's an atypical experience. All right. The media does this because they gravitate to the worst case scenarios. You know, the person with the anthropology bachelor's degree and they have $120,000 in debt and they can't find a job. The media loves to grab those stories and basically trumpet them as if they're common, they're actually very, very, very atypical. Uh, about 30% of students who graduate don't have any debt whatsoever. And so it is very possible, and that's part of the message of this book, is that you can buck the trend. You can graduate either debt-free or with very little debt. It is possible to do that. The heavy borrowers pull the average up. So this is just an example. In the class of 2012, the average debt at graduation was $29,000, but the median debt was only 17000 So by median, I mean 50th percentile. 50% of the students graduated with less than 17000 in debt, but the average was 29. How is that possible? Well, mathematically, the average can be higher than the median. Right? If I told you to average three numbers, three, four, and 100, the average would be somewhere well above 20. Right? But two, two of the two of my three data points were below 10. But the average was way up there. So when you have some people, 10% of the population borrowing lots of money, $50,000 or more, that's that's about the top 10 percentile, they pull that average up. And so it's easy for us to hear the number and say, well, everyone's doing it. Not really, not, a, not really. Okay, so getting a degree without going broke is possible, but you do it. The main thing is you want to prioritize value over prestige and amenities, okay? And you want to know how the system works, how paying for college works. It's become very complicated. To pay for college. And the FAFSA is something that we have to fill out every year, and that really sets the baseline for what your expected family contribution is, and then what the colleges then will ask you to pay. And that's very important to fill out the FAFSA and to do that well. Okay. But this notion needs to be addressed as well. Is it worth paying extra for prestige? A lot of people will borrow $50,000, $80,000 dollars to send their kids to a prestigious school, they think that if they have the certain degree, it'll be, do so many good things for them in their life. That it's going to be worth it. Um, they go into they're basically buying a brand name. Okay, they're saying if my child is a graduate of Yale or Princeton, it will be worth every penny that I borrowed for them. So they borrow huge amounts of money. Their child bar- borrows a lot of money, and they hope that that works out. Well, there's actually a lot of research on this issue now and it turns out that the students ability and effort make a much bigger difference than the selectivity of their college okay one well known study was between penn state and upenn so upenn as you probably know is an ivy league school okay the 25th percentile of the sat score at upenn is higher than the 75th percentile at penn state so that means 75% of the students at at upenn have higher test scores than 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 the top students at Penn State. Okay, so 75% of the students at UPenn are, in principle, on paper, better, more capable, more prepared than the top 25% at Penn State. Yet, So you'd think that those who choose Penn State over UPenn, those who were admitted to both schools, so a student applies to Penn State, they apply to UPenn, they get into both schools, Ivy League, non-Ivy League. One is a less expensive state school, one is very expensive elite Ivy school. They got, they got into both schools. You'd think that if they chose Penn State over UPenn, they were maybe not ambitious. Maybe they were kind of chicken, they kind of wimped out, they didn't want to be with the other smart people, so they went to this, to this other school. It turns out that longitudinal studies have found that their future earnings were about the same okay, for both, both groups of people. Uh, because the quality of how well you do after you graduate is primarily a function of you not your alma mater. Your alma mater can help, but it's more what you do that makes the difference. You could put a student in Harvard and they can goof around for four years and then wander for the next ten years. You could put a student who's capable and energetic and ambitious into a school that you've never heard of, and five years later they're doing quite well. So it more depends on the person than the, than the, alma, than the alma mater. Okay. In fact, there can be advantages to, atten- to attending what's, called a, what's known in the, in the industry as a safety school. probably heard that term. It's a school that you can safely get into. There's big advantages of attending that kind of a school. And uh, I'm going to talk about that next. So that I mentioned that Penn State, Penn study. Um, okay, so there are advantages known as big fish in a small pond. All right? Standing out among peers can foster success in a tremendous way. Uh, my own experience uh, was like that. Okay, I went to Alfred University. Has anyone ever heard of Alfred University? You have heard of it? Really? Did you, do you know somebody who went there? Oh, okay, great, from Pennsylvania, cool. All right, so I went to Alfred University, I was from Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, and my friend went to Alfred on a full National Merit Ride scholarship. I didn't get National Merit, but I went anyway, because it was a great school, and blah, 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 it was fun. But no, no one's ever heard of it, it wasn't very selective, so I was able to get in with, I didn't have the best grades in high school, but I got into that school. Strong emphasis on teaching, uh, small class sizes, good, good teachers. Anyway, by being there, and being one of the better students... That boosted my confidence, helped me do better in classes. Success breeds further success. Doing well my first semester, I did well my next semester. I got letters of recommendation for summer jobs. was able to get a summer job in a technical area. I was a materials science and engineering major, if anyone knows what that is. It's kind of a, a smaller engineering discipline. So, got jobs in that industry after my first year and my sec, after my second year. But what happened was each success brought a future success. And I wouldn't have had those successes had I gone to a bigger school. So I wouldn't have had the relationships with the faculty that I would have had as, as, that, I, that, I, that I enjoyed at a small school. If I'd, into, if I'd gone to a larger school, a more prestigious school, I may have felt great about getting in, but I wouldn't have had the relationship network to be able to succeed. And I wouldn't have been able to stand out academically. So there are advantages to going to a school where maybe you're going to be the big fish in the pond, so to speak. Uh, so these are all the things that I was able to, to take the advantage of. And, I, and when I went to graduate school, um, UC, Berkeley is where I went to graduate school. Okay. Um, I found that, you know what, I thought I was going to be surrounded by a bunch of kids who went to Caltech and Harvard and Stanford. It wasn't that way at all. Maybe 40% of my peers had gone to big name schools, but the rest of them had gone to schools I never heard of all over the country. And what happened was they had the same benefits I had at Alfred. They were able to get the advantage of having small, small student-teacher ratios, uh, getting attention from their faculty, letters of recommendation, summer projects, research uh, experiences, that kind of thing. So there really are advantages. And financially, it, it can be a big deal because you often get more scholarship money when you're one of the better students at a certain college. We'll come back to that point in a little bit. All right. All um, right. The percentage of STEM degrees earned by three groups of students. So it's, but this, is, this small fish, this big fish in a small pond thing, I'm just going to track the time here, um, is a big advantage in the STEM field. So STEM refers to science, technology, engineering, and math. And these are very popular majors now. They're very in demand, good earning prospects, that sort of thing. But it turns out this, this issue of being one of the better students is particularly important in the area of STEM. The, this is a study that was uh, reported on um, by Malcolm Gladwell in his book, David and Goliath. It uh, looked at Hartwick College, which is a non-selective school in the Northeast. And the top third of students by SAT score, um, f- he, was, he was looking at what was the percentage of STEM degrees that were earned by three groups of students. Okay? So you would expect that if everybody earns a STEM degree who starts off in a STEM program, it'd be 33%, 33%, 33%. Right? That's the percentage that would be earned by those three different groupings. The top third, 53% of the STEM degrees were earned by the top third students by SAT math score. The middle third, 31%, that's roughly proportional. And the bottom third, only one in six. So that means out of those bottom third of students, about half of them never graduated in the STEM major. Okay? So the look at the students who start off in STEM, the students who end in STEM, and it was, it was bifurcated by SAT score. Those who had lower SAT scores, half of them didn't make it. Now you may think, well, that's Hartwick. Look at those scores. They're not really the highest scores. If your SAT score is 400 in math, you're probably not going to do too well in calculus, physics, uh, electronics, other classes that are, you know, chemistry, biochemistry, organic chemistry, might not be your thing. But it turns out when he did this data at, Har- at Harvard College, right, one of the elite schools in the nation, one of the hardest schools to get into, the top third of students. of the STEM degrees were earned by that top third of students. SAT scores, very, very high, right? Middle third, 27%. The bottom third, again, sorry, again, one in six, only one in six. So only one in six out of the STEM degrees at Harvard go to that bottom third of students. Well, that bottom third of students have higher test scores than the top third at Hartwick. Shouldn't they all be able to graduate in STEM? They could have, but it was demoral. The, the, the analysis was that these students who had gotten great grades in high school, they go to Harvard, right? They have all A's in high school. They have a high test scores. And they get to Harvard and they find out that, you know what, you're in the bottom third. You're getting the C plus, you're getting the B minus. That experience was so mentally disturbing that they changed majors. They still graduated from Harvard. Harvard has a 95% graduation rate, if not higher. So it's not, it's not like these kids dropped out of college and left you know, to go be baristas. They graduated from college. But they didn't graduate in what they wanted to study, because it was too discouraging. So there is an advantage psychologically, and it turns out an, an, an advantage in terms of practically from being among the better students at a school. It really does help you. Um, and. Financially, it helps you as, as well, okay? So here's the deal on finances. The dotted lines I showed you earlier were net price, okay? The, pr- the prices that colleges publish are list prices, okay? Every college publishes a list price, and the, the net price is what you actually have to pay, earn, or borrow to go to that school. So that's the, f- the formula, okay? Net price equals list price minus grants minus scholarships. Um, and, the, and then the rest of it, you have to either pay up front or you have to earn it. Maybe you have a, some work-study hours. Or you have to borrow it. And it's kind of up to you how you do that. Okay, value is quality versus price. Another, another equation. I apologize. I teach physics. So a couple equations. Sorry about that. Um, quality versus price. When you think about buying any product that you might buy, maybe a car, okay? You want to find a car that is, has a high quality, maybe has a good reputation, at, at, at lasting a long time. So high quality, but you don't want to pay too much for it. If it's got lower quality and you pay less, maybe you think that's okay. Because maybe you couldn't afford very much, but you paid less and you got a less quality car. Maybe that was an okay transaction for you because you just needed to have something to drive. Okay? So if you, the, the better the quality and the lower the price, the better the value. That's the deal, right? So students pay very different prices to attend college. Very, very different prices. And the more school wants you, the less you have to pay, generally speaking. All right? Um, what you want is a school that has good quality for as low of a price as possible. And that's what you're looking for. If you want to beat the college debt trap, look for value, yes, but be aware that, hey, where can I get the most value for my price, for the, my price range? And if you get a little bit less quality, but it costs one-third as much, you're probably going to come out ahead. That, that's, that's the calculation. All right. And you can actually find out in advance what some of these schools are going to offer you. There are some websites out there that let you kind of get a, get a heads up before you even apply what kind of financial aid package can I expect to receive from that college? One site that I like a lot is collegedata.com because what you can do is you can see how much aid they typically grant, need based versus merit based, freshmen versus all students, okay? What happens sometimes is freshmen get better packages, financial aid-wise, because they want you to come to the school. They want you to start off here. So we're going to give you extra scholarships, some extra uh, incentives to come to the school. And then your sophomore year, guess what? Now I expect you to pay 5000 more. And... Uh, so you want to kind of avoid a school that is going to have a very big difference in that regard because that could be, that could be difficult for you. So you. You want to plan out what it's going to take for me to graduate in the school in four or five years, not just can I afford one year. Uh, you want to be able to afford the whole, all four years. Um, these sites also allow you to search for schools by affordability using a college match tool. You can put in specific criteria and look at various states and say, okay, if my price range is 20000 a year, what could I find? Uh, And it includes admissions profiles, okay, in terms of what kind of students get admitted to the school, where would my son or daughter's SAT, ACT scores stack up with their students' GPA, ACT, SAT, that kind of thing. Um, Because the key is that... Standout students get more aid. That's pretty typical, all right? And I'm not saying that's that's anything wrong with that. It's just, that's just the way it is. A school typically wants to grow in terms of its academic profile, and it does so by attracting quality students. So like my friend went to Alfred University on a full-ride scholarship. Why? Because he was a National Merit Scholar. He stood out. I didn't get that National Merit Scholar. I had to pay tuition to go to that same school. So that, if you can do well in your... Um, students often ask, what can I do to earn more money for college? And yeah, you can find private scholarships out there. And if you find ones that don't have a lot of people applying for them, that's great. Go for it. Maybe, maybe you'll be able to get some money that way. But the vast majority of scholarship money comes from the schools themselves. Okay? Only 7% of sco- students have a private scholarship. And the average private scholarship is $2,500 a year. And it's usually just for one year, not for four or five. Schools give out scholarships that stay freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, senior year, provided you you maintain eligibility by having a minimum GPA or having certain conditions that are still true regarding your situation. So the best way to get money from college is to have a good ACT score, to have good grades, to have a good profile. To be a desirable candidate will get you more aid, especially from private schools. My wife's experience, she had great high school grades, a school in the Pacific Northwest offered her almost a full ride, almost a full ride, very, very good package. And she lived in, in Palo Alto, California, and her parents went to Stanford. And her grandpa wanted her to go to Stanford, but Stanford didn't offer her a penny, nothing. So she would have had to borrow $100,000 to get through Stanford. Now, it turns out that, that her grandpa really wanted her to go, so he kind of made it happen financially, and she only had to borrow like 10000 so she went to Stanford anyway. But if she hadn't had her grandpa... She would have been a Stanford grad with $100,000 in debt. That would not have been a good transaction. Yes, it's cool to be a Stanford grad, but is it that cool? That's the, the question you want to ask yourself. I, I, I'm happy to admit here to you that a Mercedes-Benz is a great car, better than, than the car that I drive. But I can't afford it, so that's okay. Right? I, it's okay to say it's a good car, but not for me, not at my price range. That's okay to say. I, I drive a, a Honda Accord. Uh, No, sorry, what do I drive now? My cord died a year ago. Now I drive the one below that. What's the one? Civic, Civic. that's the one I drive, yeah. It's great, it's great. Gas mileage is fantastic, insurance is cheap, and it does the job. I only drive 4,000 miles a year, it's fine. Would I like to drive a Mercedes? Sure. Is it a better car? Of course. But can I afford it? No, that's okay. So it's good to have some priority and say, you know what, I want to get a college degree, I have a price range, I'm going to stick to my price range. All right, so this, this website lets, lets you actually see real students at the school right now, what are their test scores. So you could, you could know whether your son or daughter is going to be a standout at a particular school based on looking at what other students that college has right now. That site's a little bit better than the, than, than the other site for looking at academic profile of current students. Okay, student loans. It's, it, this kind of goes without saying, but it's really important to make them your last resort, okay? A lot of students borrow first, especially first-generation students who don't know how the system works. I have a student who's become a good friend. He worked for me for a while. He's out now in the workforce doing well. But when he went to school, he didn't want to ask his family for money. He, he had, was a little older. He had, he had worked a little bit out of high school. Then he went to college. said, I don't want to ask my mom and dad for help or my grandpa or anybody else. I just want to be able to make it work. I'm just going to sign all the loans out and he borrowed an obscene amount of money. Now, guess who's helping him pay it off? His mom, his dad, his grandpa, his uncle, his aunt. Had he gone to them up front, he would have been in a much better situation. So what, what I told him is, why didn't you go to them first? He didn't think of it, it didn't occur, he didn't wanna embarrass them, he didn't wanna ask for help. So it's very important to, uh, yes, do this, but also, um, let me hit these points first, and I'll come back to that. Borrow proportional to your earnings, okay? Bar proportional to your earnings prospects. Uh, if you're going to be an elementary education teacher, uh, that's a great field, wonderful field, but you need to realize what the earning prospects are in that field and not borrow in a way that's disproportionate to that field. Um, and salary prospects can be discovered through the internet research, internet research pretty easily nowadays. Bureau of Labor Statistics is a great site. There are other sites that will tell you what starting salaries typically are and what median level salaries typically are. Um, Consider the risk, okay? Six-year graduation rates in this country are less than 60%. means four to ten students who begin at a four-year college, like MSU or University of Michigan, they will not graduate in six years. Okay? So there are some risks associated with going to college, and we want to borrow in a way that's proportional. One of the things I tell some students is, if you can get through your freshman and sophomore year with as little borrowing as possible, then when, when graduation is more in sight, when it's very clear when you're going to graduate and what you're going to graduate in, then do some more borrowing then because you know, hey, I'm two years away from getting a job in this field and earning this much money. It's a little bit more certain. There's less risk involved. If you can save your borrowing to later, it also reduces the amount of interest you have to pay on your debt. Okay, um, especially in some majors. Uh, if you switch majors, that takes time. Um, some areas half high-earning prospects, but they have a high attrition rate, okay? One out of every every ten freshmen who says they're pre-med will actually get into medical school, one out of every ten. One half of engineering freshmen will graduate with an engineering diploma, Okay. Now, no one thinks they're not going to make it because everyone believes they, they're great. Everyone got a trophy for showing up when they were little, all that stuff, right? Participation trophies. So everyone believes that they're really smart, really good at science and math and everything. They're going to be fine. they gonna get into law school, get into med school, get into whatever. they start borrowing money freshman year, and then they realize, uh-oh, I guess it's really not working out. What am I going to do now? I have all this debt. And so that's what you want to watch out for. That freshman year... A lot of it's still up in the air, and that's okay. But then, don't borrow money if you can avoid it. At least don't mar- don't borrow beyond that subsidized Stafford loan if you qualify for it, because the government's paying the interest on that loan. The subsidized Stafford loan, you don't pay the interest on it. It's interest free to you. Uncle Sam's paying the interest for you. That can be a good deal. Um, but what you want to do is tap family and 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 grandparents first, okay? So what my student did, going back to my student, my former student, he failed to ask his relatives for money and now he's having to pay back his loans with interest rates of 5 to 10% and he's having to ask his parents for help. So had he done it the other way around, he would have had a lot less in debt. Um, So here's just just an FYI. If you can contribute at least $4,000 a year, the government gives you more than half of it back. It's a pretty good deal. I'm going to take questions at the end, I believe. Go ahead. When you say you, you mean you as a student or you as a parent? Great, great, good point. So uh, when I say you here, I mean you as a student. And with whatever family situation that you have, supposing that you need $20,000 a year to go to school. If you, the parent, this is the parent, the parent gets back the money for paying 4000 So if, if parents pay $4,000 or more f- towards college, government gives you back $2,500 through the, through the opportunity tax credit. So th- yeah, th- that's, that's for the parents. Um, parents can save early with a 529 Educational Savings Plan. That's probably the most popular, I think the most advantageous plan for saving for college is the 529 Educational Plan. It's a tax-deferred plan. It's kind of like an IRA where the money that grows, um, it's kind of like a Roth IRA, I should say. The money that grows is growing tax-deferred. If you, as long as you spend it on education, you pay no, no taxes on it, on, on, on the, the growth. You put in um, post-tax dollars the one I'm talking about. Um, ask grandparents or relatives for help before going to Uncle Sam. That's what my, my old student failed to do, and that's what caused him so many problems. Help can be an interest-free loan. So an interest-free loan from a relative is a lot better than a, than a, than a loan with interest from the government. Your family, the local lo- locality in your area, your church, your parish, your neighborhood, people that you know locally, are in a much better position to lend you money, hold you accountable, have some, stake, some skin in the game, hold you to have some skin in the game, and help you understand the, the cost of borrowing. Because a lot of times borrowing from the government can seem like it's too easy. It's, it feels like free money, because you spend 10 minutes and all of a sudden you have thousands of dollars. And where else can you do that in this country? You can't do that with anything else. You can't borrow for a house like you can borrow for college. In other words, when I go to buy a house, someone checks me out to make sure I can afford the mortgage. When you go to borrow for college from the government, they don't check you out at all. Okay, I, I could decide to go study whatever weird field you, you can think of at whatever college I might want to go to and borrow as much money from the government as I, as I want up to the cumulative limit of the Stafford loan. So that's, that's dangerous, right? Because how do you know I'm going to be able to pay it back? So working with someone local who can hold you accountable, who can say, you know what, I'm not sure you're, you're ready to do to take out $5,000 in debt yet. I'm going to let you borrow 2000 not 5000 Somebody who can hold you to greater accountability can be much more helpful to you as a student. Okay? And yes, I believe students can earn money while they're in college. Okay, this is a controversial, I've had people say, I don't want my kids earning money when they're in college, I want them working in their schoolwork. And obviously it's better, it's ideal if you don't have to work while you're in college, because you can focus on your studies. But the reality is, most of us have to do that. They have to work, most of us, myself included, had to work something while I was in college. Um, But here's the deal. Students who work five or ten hours a week, they'll actually outperform their peers. Why? They will be better time management. Uh, time management skills, discipline skills, personal, dis- personal, uh, organizational skills, maturity, professionalism, that'll all rise. And they'll have a sense of what they're paying for. I often tell my students in class if you miss a class period for no reason, you just dropped $100. So I wrote up the numbers how much money does it cost per hour of learning at college, at my college, by credit hour, by semester, by hour of lecture you miss is $100, so you wouldn't want to do that, right? No, I wouldn't want to do it. Okay, I'll come to class. It increases motivation, skin in the game, all that kind of thing. Okay, if you leverage your skills, if students leverage their skills, they can earn above minimum wage. I think Mike was telling me about his daughter's skills. You can earn significant money in college by using skills you have. Maybe it's artistic, maybe it's musical, maybe it's athletic. Uh, I drove to the airport with an Uber driver who told me he was paying for all his school with Uber. All of it. Now, he was going to school online, taking like 10 hours a semester, which is not a full load, but he was getting all of it paid for while he was going through school. He had two jobs, one job to pay for his living, one job to pay for his school. But he was probably first generation. His parents probably didn't have any money, so more power to him, right? He's, he's avoiding big debt by earning money. So this can be done. Uh, if summertime, if necessary, you can work more hours. Uh, what, why not? You, you, you're, you're young, you're you're healthy, If it helps you avoid debt, you'll feel much better about it later on. And here's the thing that a lot of students don't realize is that what employers are looking for today is professionalism and maturity, more than they are a top-level grades. They would rather have a student with a 3.0 with maturity and professionalism than a student with a 3.8 who's never worked a day day in their life. Because the student who's got the 3.0 and who's worked two or three jobs to pay pay for their own college, that student knows what it means to work, to show up on time, to be disciplined, to be responsible, to be dependable. In other words, the person with a 3.8 GPA who had just been a student all their life, all they know how to do is, at least on paper, all you know that they know how to do is do what they need to do to get the highest grade possible but see school and work are very different worlds. The school work is independent. It's okay. I sit in class, I take notes, what I need to know for the test, okay, I do it. Boom, A, paper, boom, A. Go to the, go to work in the workforce, you got to work with a team of people who are different than you. You got to kind of pitch in, you got to be flexible, got to work long hours sometimes. You got to be a team player, not just being it for yourself. And so there's different kinds of skills that employers are telling us college educators now that our new graduates don't always have those skills and want to make sure they have those skills. So working is a good way to get those skills. Oops. Okay. If borrowing, stay within the Stafford loan limits. Okay. These are the loan limits and Congress is not exactly known for fiscal maturity, fiscal responsibility, but these are limits that come from Congress so they are probably should be taken, taken with some consideration, right? If, if you need to, to borrow more than $31,000 for college, you're probably doing something wrong. That's the reality. I tell people that. It's, I know it sounds sounds hard, but that's the truth. Because there are colleges where you can you can don't have to spend that much money to go to them. Okay, if your AGI, your just the gross income, is below fifty thousand, you almost certainly can get subsidized loans. But it's possible even up to one hundred thousand. So you there is free money out there if you can uh, fill out the FAFSA and and take that seriously. So in summary, um, college can cost a lot but doesn't have to, okay? Shop for value. Encourage your student to aim for earning about 5000 10000 a year, okay? If, you, if necessary. Again, not, not every family needs to, but if your family needs to, then that is possible. It is doable. Mainly when classes are out of session, you can earn most of that money. Um, save what you can as a family and get help from your extended family to minimize debt. Um, just one quick story before I... I uh, I'm almost out of time, but I have a friend from my church who has an expected family contribution of less than $6,000. So almost got a Pell Grant. This student is now going to a private Christian school, only spending $15,000 a year. Now, she had to work a job, she had to get some help from her grandparents, but her debt is only the Stafford subsidized loan. She's going to graduate with $15,000 in debt, it'll be a monthly payment of about $150 a month, very, very reasonable, private Christian education. So it is doable, even for families that come from very modest income levels, okay? It just, you have to know the system and then find the schools that want you enough to make it work. That's, that's kind of the key. So with that, open the floor for questions.
2: Let's give uh, Alex a round of applause. Thank you. <clears throat> I failed to mention that in his bio... His degrees are in engineering. Right, right. Ceramic engineering.
0: Yeah, yeah that was, that's right. What is that? It's a branch of material science. Okay. It's kind of a specialty.
2: I used to do ceramics.
0: It's <laughs> art yeah, pottery, yeah. right.
2: I was not an engineer, though. <laughs> but I thought to myself, how in the world does an engineer get to understand things like this? But then I thought, with the complexity of everything that you have to do in order to figure this out, it would take... An engineer. So thank you for... Thank you. And I should say that his book... Um, maybe hold. I'll hold it up. Yeah. This book is available tonight uh, for sale. I think it's $12. It's right in the back. Just take everything that Alex said tonight and multiply it by 10, and it's in this book. So you can pick that up, and I think Alex will be over here. He can sign it later. But we want to take uh, plenty of time. We have We have time right now for specific questions. So if you just raise your hand, and uh, I'll give you the mic, and then just uh, ask your question. Yeah,
0: sorry, went Too fast. I, I often speak for about an hour. I'm a college professor, so getting everything in a half hour is kind of tough. But if, if there's stuff I didn't talk about that I thought would come up now, feel free to bring it up
1: now. My question is about 529s. Yeah. I know that certain kinds of assets count against you for need-based assistance. Can you speak to that with
0: 529s and perhaps other types of assets? Um. So the, the main ways to, to lower your apparent wealth on the FAFSA, and there's a financial aid officer in the room right now who probably knows more than I do about this particular topic, but um, is put money into your home. So home equity, does, equity doesn't count at all on the FAFSA. So if you have a debt on your home of, say, $100,000 and your child's approaching college, and you were to put extra money towards your home mortgage, that would not show up at all on the FAFSA. The other one is retirement assets. So 401Ks, Roth IRAs, uh, govern, um, work plans, 403Bs, all those kinds of plans, they don't show up on the FAFSA as well. Um, the 529s, I believe they do show up on the FAFSA as wealth. But the advantage of them is that the earnings you have on the 529, that, that earnings, so if you put in $25,000 into, into a 529 and it grows to, to $75,000, that's $50,000 of appreciation, that $50,000 can go towards college expenses without having to pay any taxes on the 50000 That's the advantage, although it does show up as wealth on the, fa- on the FAFSA, is that, is that right? Yeah, but it's probably worth it though because you can actually spend it and not pay the taxes on the growth. That's... What do you think of junior colleges? They're fantastic. I think tra- the only, so I, what the question is what do I, I think of junior colleges? I think they're fantastic for the, an associate's program. If, if what you want is an associate's degree, they're great. And one of the things I talk about in my book is that we probably have too many people going to four-year colleges now because all the high schools are kind of measured by what percentage of your students went to four-year college. I've seen students who are great at fixing cars, great at fixing computers, would make great technicians in the healthcare industry, in the engineering industry, and they go to four-year college and they get lost in the math and science courses. They could get an associate's degree, a trade school degree, and do just fine. A lot of the job growth we're going to see in our country is going to be middle skill jobs, jobs that don't require a bachelor's, um, but do require more than a high school degree. So getting a degree from a junior college, great. Also transferring from a junior college to a four-year college, also great. The only problem with the transfer thing is you don't always get the classes that you need when you need them. So you you don't want to spend 7 years going to get your bachelor's degree when you could have gotten it in 4 or 5 years. Not now there's time lost in terms of your wages that you could have been earning in the job market. There's opportunity cost. So if you can avoid that, then yeah, it's a good path. Yeah. Um, maybe I was foolish in this, but uh, I put my wife and I put two students through MSU and got a, not a nickel. We financed the whole thing and I'm proud of that. But the first few years we filled out the FASA. Uh huh. Was that right? If and after a right. while, for both of them, I just stopped doing it. I mean, our economic uh, um, situation didn't change. Right. They offered a Zippo. Right. Was I foolish in not filling that out for all four years for both of them? I think it's worth filling it out. Uh, they're, they're trying to make it easier now. Now they have a thing where you can fill it out early based on the prior prior year of your earnings. So you can actually fill out the FAFSA as early as I think October one. They opened it. October one, you could fill out a FAFSA based on your two thousand fifteen Tax uh, statements—they're they're making it easier for parents to fill it out earlier, and it's worth filling it out because the the the, 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 the rules keep changing, and every year the income that you can get help for is rising. So the the your AGI can be higher and higher. And you can still get help every year. It kind of kind of kind of bumps it up. So it's worth filling it out. I know a lot of people get zero, but it's worth trying. You never know what you're going to get unless you unless you try it. Alex,
3: this is phenomenal. I wish this room was packed. I am a school college counselor here in Grand Rapids, and this is the message that so few of our students are not receiving, um, Mm -hmm. in part because my profession is not well-trained in this, and we don't have time with our student loads to get that kind of professional development. Um, Not to steal your thunder, but I have to, in the spirit of my profession, offer to the families that are here a wonderful video that... Uh, would support what you're talking about in terms of either junior colleges or career paths that don't require a bachelor's degree. And it's right. on YouTube, and it's called Success in the New Economy. It's just made a couple years ago. Our local um, intermediate school district uh, showed it to school counselors. It's a wonderful, wonderful video and visual to understand the stats of what happens with a degree in our current job market. Right. Um so thank you for what you're doing, and this is wonderful.
0: Thank you.
2: And I should mention, uh, not only um, did we get this on video, so this, this was captured on video. We'll, we'll post that on the Acton blog so that you can watch it again. And then there's always that wonderful little button called Share, so you can share that with as many people as you can. And then we also did a podcast today, um, we did a podcast, I think it was about 30 minutes yeah, um, like with Alex. So look for that as well. Uh, so there's two more opportunities. Other questions? So I was wondering if you could define what proportional to the income is exactly?
0: Yeah. So one of the rules you'll hear a lot, other people talk about don't borrow more than the first than, than, than annual salary than what, what you're going into. That rule is out there that you know you shouldn't borrow more than, your, than you can earn your first year in the job market. I actually have a more conservative rule than that. My rule would be don't go beyond the federal Stafford loan limits that are out there, so 31000 and ideally don't go beyond half your first-year salary. Because what students don't realize is that when you earn that salary, the government takes quite a bit of it away. As I know Acton works on these issues of limited government, we have a big government, right, nowadays. And I always remember when I got my first job, what percentage of my salary was being taken away for taxes? So when you think... Uh, about everything you need to spend on, including maybe, maybe, your, maybe your, uh, a person's giving to, to, to a church as well. You're giving to your church, you're giving to the government, what do you have left for discretionary funding? You're probably better off not borrowing more than half your first-year income. So nowadays, $50,000 is a starting salary, not borrowing more than twenty five. dollars uh, A good rule of thumb with Stafford loans is your monthly payment will be roughly 1% of your, of your loan balance, so if you have $15,000 in debt, your monthly payment is going to be about $150 a month. That's manageable for mo- for most students who graduate and get work. But you got to also think, you know, it may take me six months to get a job. It may take me a year to get a job. So not borrowing more than half of your first year income is, is I think, a more conservative and a better rule. And again, the way to do that is by working more during school so encouraging students to be industrious and be entrepreneurial about earning more money in the summertime especially to be able to pay down more of their debt while they're incurring it so the stafford loans that they're subsidized there's no interest you have to pay on them can you can you can you pay them off while you're in school and so that when you graduate you have very little left to pay that's that's a good way to do it
2: so could you explain the american opportunity tax credit i've never heard of that
0: yeah so all all I know, maybe, maybe she knows more about it than I do, but what I know is that it's $2,500 a year of a tax credit if you spend $4,000 or more on educationally qualified expenses. So tuition, room, board, books, fees. If you're spending more than $4,000 or more in a, in a given calendar year, then on your taxes, there'll be a line item for that, and you'll come back as a credit, $2,500 as, as a credit. So, however you do your taxes, if you have an accountant, they should know how they should know that. If you do a TurboTax, it'll have a line where you put in four thousand dollars or more of what you spent on educational expenses, and it'll kick back twenty five hundred dollars back to you as a credit. Does that matter in your income level? Or it, does? It, it phases out at some point, right? So I think it's it's it depa- Yeah, for higher income people, you're talking about, yeah. Just so, just so you know, I, I live in the county that has the lowest college graduation rate in the nation. So I speak a lot to students who come from families from lower to middle socioeconomic classes. And this is something that, that they, they don't know anything about this topic, so it's very helpful for them. Because um, I because Riverside County, California, has the lowest uh, population of adults with college degrees. But we have a fast-growing population. Uh, young adults who are trying to get college college education. So that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. So I, I was, I'm was i not aware of the details on when the AMT kicks in at what levels that comes in.
3: You're talking uh, mainly about the Stafford loans. Yeah. You have to have a certain income to qualify for that. Only correct? for the
0: subsidized. The, the non-subsidized Stafford loans do not have an income requirement. So, so anyone can get a Stafford loan. But the only people that can get subsidized Stafford loans are the ones who have lower AGIs.
3: So is there um, an advantage to getting a Stafford loan versus something like Sally May? Yes. So, um, How would a a college student choose what type of loan they're going to get?
0: Great question. So federal loans in general are better than private loans because they tend to have fixed interest rates and lower interest rates. Also, federal loans have some loan forgiveness programs that are out there. For example, if you're going to go teach in an inner city, there's oftentimes a loan forgiveness program that if you do 10 years of service in an underprivileged area, you can have all your federal loans be forgiven. I I know a student who had $90,000 in debt who joined the military. In 10 years, the military will forgive all of his federal student loans, but none of his private loans. So I would advocate... Federal Stafford subsidized loans first. Then if you need to go beyond that, federal unsubsidized Stafford loans. And if you need to go beyond that, ask yourself if you're going to the right college. Because at what point are, are you willing to say that college really, really is worth that much more to me? Now, again, some colleges are cheaper for some students. For example, if you're a top level student, you, you could go to a lot of great schools and they'll pay for all of it because they have the resources to do that if you're a top level student. So again, um, college is worth it for the right student at the right price. And so what what a college chart, let's say Duke University charges a student from inner city of Chicago $1,000 a year to be there, that's a great price. But they charge you $50,000 a year to be there, maybe it's not worth it at that price. So yeah, I, I would not personally recommend that anybody go beyond the federal loans for the undergraduate. Now, for graduate degree, it's different. If you're going to be a doctor, if you've already passed undergrad, if you're already in medical school, if you're two years out from being a um, a hematologist, okay, you're going to have a very high income in two years. Now, it makes more sense to borrow more money because you know what's coming two years from now. Thank you for the information on the study about the STEM graduates. We, our youngest of five, is considering engineering. Uh-huh. She's a junior. In- high school right now. She has four older siblings who have gone through this whole process. And she asked a very insightful question. It was, do I go to the school that has the most prestigious engineering program, or do I go to a school that is not as strong perhaps, but is offering more money? So Okay, great question. So the prestige factor, realize that some of some of what influences prestige is non academic. A lot, a lot of the prestige that's out there for certain schools is based on things that are not academic at all. Uh, the U.S. News and World Report rankings, for example, has been debunked by a lot of sources. Just If you go on the Internet and put U.S. News and World Report, why it's debunked, you'll see people critiquing it very powerfully because it doesn't necessarily rate quality. So don't put too much stock in prestige. I would look at the academic um, academic programs, instructional programs. Are the buildings in good shape? Do they have good science labs? Are the teachers caring about their students? How much do they teach? How much do adjuncts teach? How much availability does a student have to adjuncts and full-time faculty? Like all of our faculty have to require to have office hours, so I'm available to my students. That's a good thing. Are your students going to be sitting under good professors who care about their learning? Those are factors that I would, I would look at. And um, I wouldn't look at prestige too much. I would look at go to the best school with the best undergraduate education where your student is likely to shine, uh, where they're likely to be among the top, top students and therefore get a good offer. Um, so, for example, at Alfred University, all my class sizes were 25 students or less. That made a big difference for me. I would have been lost at a big school, but I went to a big graduate school. Okay? but By then, I was more mature, stronger intellectually, more pre- well-prepared, but at 18, I wasn't there yet. So that made a big difference. So I would look, look at the whole package. Uh, does a school value undergraduate education? Because a lot of the big name schools, they, they value graduate education. They don't, the undergraduates are there to pay the bills so that the grad students grad school can keep operating. So. Yeah, you have to feel comfortable, that there has to be that level of, I'm going to be comfortable here, I'm going to feel like I'm going to grow in my confidence and grow in myself intellectually. There has to be that. I think part of that is smaller schools cultivate that. I also am a big believer in liberal arts education for engineers. I think people who are technical, there's a danger of saying, all I want to do is study computer science. Computer science, computer science, computer science, computer science. And I'm not going to learn speech or English or philosophy or literature. And the reality is those other, those other classes make you a better person and they make you more versatile when you graduate. Because I tell my engineering students, you're going to have to give presentations. You're going to have to work with people who are mar- in marketing or other fields. Uh, great, great discipline right there. So you're going to have to learn how to work with other people who are different than you. And just being more technical is not going to be very useful to you. If you want to go get a PhD later on, fine, do that. But at your undergraduate level, you want to be a little bit knowledgeable in a lot of fields and then go deep in one field. And then when you graduate, then you can navigate your career accordingly as, as God opens doors and you have opportunities to go different directions. But undergrad, you don't want to go too narrow either. So I wouldn't just say, What's there, how, how good is their engineering school? I'd look at how good of a school is it? Do they care about students? Am I going to thrive here? Am I going to feel comfortable here? Those kind of factors. Can I afford to be here? All that.
2: Other questions. You have an expert right here, <laughs> so if you have a question, and if you have one later on, I think yeah. it's going to stay as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: CSS profile. Any thoughts? Any comments on
0: that? So the profile. The profile is another. So for those of you those don't know, the CSS profile is CSS profile is another way that some schools, typically more elite schools analyzed a family's financial assets to determine financial aid. Uh, my wife got, in, got the profile. She went to Stanford. Uh, her family was in Palo Alto, had a small house there. Well, the houses in Palo Alto are all worth a million dollars. Her family's income wasn't very high. They qualified actually for subsidized Stafford loans. But Stanford made them pay an arm and a leg because they said you have a lot of home equity. So the CSS profile takes a broader look at your assets. And for a lot of uh, people who have high net worths, but maybe not necessarily high incomes, they have a lot of retirement money or home money. Um, well, not retirement money, but just home money. Home money is where the CSIS profile can get, take a bigger bite out of a family's chunk. Because my, my wife had to end up borrowing some money to go to Stanford because her parents didn't want to take out a second loan on their home, which is what Stanford told them that they needed to do. So, um, you know... Obviously, Stanford's a great school, so she's happy that she went there. But the point is, yeah, the profile tends to, in my opinion, maybe you know more than I do, but it tends to be less generous to the family. And again, it's only it's only seems to be required by the by the higher name schools. One thing that I've heard is better about the profile, though, is that if you have two other, if you have other siblings that are in college at the same time it takes that into consideration more than the, than the FAFSA. Is that true? That's what I've heard. Okay, okay. But I, I have heard that about the profile, is that if you have siblings in, at schools, it takes a bigger look at your assets, but also looks at your liabilities. The fact that you have you know an older sister, an older brother that's going to private college as well, and that maybe you can't afford as much. So I think that's where it can maybe can help you. But again, some schools require a profile. If you wanna to go to a school that has a profile, you gotta do the profile.
3: I'm really not dominating. I just have a lot of questions. (laughs) Um, Endowments. Is it important for families to look at the endowment of any given college that they're seriously considering? Would that be informative to them or not so much in terms of their generosity to the family?
0: You know, that's a great, 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 great question. I would look more at their past generosity. So, I I would personally look more at the college... CollegeData.com site at what they typically award in terms of need-based and merit-based awards. What percentage of students get funding? How much funding do they get? I would look at that more than the endowment because I know that some schools value endowments more than other schools do, um, and so it's just a matter of I think the, I think past generosity is a good predictor of future, future generosity more than the endowment. And, and the bigger factor too is where you rank among those students. In other words, if that school wants to grow an engineering program, and you're a top student in engineering, that they're going to be some more generosity extended to you.
2: Yeah. Um, you stated seven percent of students have private scholarships. So how much time do you spend looking for those?
0: That's why a lot of those students spent hours looking for them. Okay, and, and it's it's one of those myths that are out there that, hey, there's $100,000 that goes un, untapped. Keep going after it. Keep going after it. Keep going after it. There is some truth to that, but a lot of time can be wasted applying for them. If you're going to apply for private scholarships, ask your college which ones they know about that you, can, that you qualify for. Ask your local uh, library which ones are local that you know about. Why I say local? Ask your parents' employers. Why? What you want is to apply for the ones that have fewer applicants. That's what you want because the big ones, the ones that you can find on fastscholarships.com, those ones are getting thousands and tens of thousands of applicants. So that's like a shot in the dark whether you're going to get one. When I was in school, I was told about a private scholarship that only students who were studying ceramic engineering could apply for. At the time, there were only 12 schools in the country that had that program. Most schools had a program called material science, which was kind of a larger umbrella over material science, metallurgy, and a couple other disciplines. So, my professor said there's only 12 schools in the country that can apply, why don't you apply? Turns out only 15 students applied for it. It was $5,000 and I got it. But part of why I got it was only 15 students applied. Would I have got it if 1,000 students had applied? Probably not. So, yes, there's money that's out there, but what you want to find is the ones that you qualify for that you have a good shot at it, then go for it. Because A lot of students spend a lot of time uh, on private scholarships and the reality is that they had to put that time into getting a higher ACT score, into getting higher grades, into getting maybe a, an academic internship of some sort, that's going to stand out a lot more and the, the college themselves will then give you, you know, $5,000, $10,000 every year, which is a much better. Most scholarship money comes from schools. That's the reality. They, come, they call it institutional scholarships that come from the institution to the students that they think have the most potential and the most need. So that's just, the, you get more bang for your buck that way.
2: I can actually verify that because <laughs> uh, my wife and I, we have two children in college and, and one of our, uh, our daughter goes to a uh, Catholic liberal arts school here. And you know, a lot of times as parents, we're always very fast to tell them what to do and they should go do this. And of course we were encouraging our daughter to go to the financial aid department and just do basically that. What could I possibly apply for that I have a good shot of doing? And of course, was she happy when we told her to go? Of course not, but she went because we told her and then she went and they found her a scholarship. And it was, I don't know, not much, 2000 something. But then the next semester she went on her own and she came back and said, This time I got two, and so now all of a sudden she's going back on her own uh, just simply because we encouraged her the first time. Um, But I I would encourage that, um, don't just go out anywhere, but try to qualify it as much as you can. Any other questions? And
0: one one more thing on on that question. I think there's room now, more and more schools now are trying to retain their students. Retention is a big issue. You don't want to lose students that are already going to your college. Uh, I've known of students at various colleges who have gone back to their college and said, look, my my dad lost his job this last year. I have this financial hardship. I need a few thousand dollars more and I can keep going here. And there's schools that I've worked that out with them. So it's good to go back to the school, like, like Mike was saying, and say, you know, do you have anything else that would could help me stay in school? I know a married student right now who has a couple of kids and he's getting his bachelor's degree now. A little, uh, He worked for a while and now he's back in school. And he told the school, this is what I need and I'll stay here. Otherwise, I have to leave. And the school made it work for him. So schools want to do the right yeah. thing. They need to know what the needs are.
2: And that, I mean, that's the amazing thing about this particular school, is that that staff, they enjoy connecting students with funds. That's what they do. They yeah. like to do that. So why not have them have fun? And so I keep telling my, my daughter. always says, well, Dad, I, I feel like I'm bothering them. I said, no, they love to do that. That's what they do. And then when she finally realized that, and then, you know, somewhere in the good book, it says you have not because you ask not. And so it does, you know, I'm in marketing and sales and I have a hard time asking for the sale. My wife does it all the time and she's not in sales. She says, you don't ask and you don't get. So yeah. any other final questions? Yes. Yes.
3: Can I just throw in a plug for the Grand Rapids Community Foundation? Um, You can go to any high school in Kent County and be going to almost any college in the state, and they award over a million dollars in scholarships every year.
0: That's fantastic. Is that an application process you have to apply? Yes, they will have an application that comes out early January and February.
2: Early January and February application. That's Grand Rapids Community Foundation.
0: Is there also the equivalent, like in California, we have the Cal Grant program. So if you're a good student in California, regardless of your income level, you can get up to, I think it's $11,000 per year to go to a California school. Does Michigan have an equivalent of that? Okay, okay. Right, so again, that's another reason why you mentioned these are worth filling out the FAFSA. That's why I tell students, just fill it out because you don't know what's out there, and most of what's out there requires the FAFSA to be filled out.
2: Well, thank you, Alex, yeah. very much. Join me in thanking Alex for this Thanks for having me. Thank
0: you.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.